Good morning. It's good to be with you all again. Uh, for those of you who uh, aren't aware, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And uh, today, uh, we're going to be reading from Matthew 6, verses 1 through 24. In your pew Bible, that's page 811. So if you want to turn there, you can read with me. Uh, and we're going to finish up in these next two Sundays, uh, the latter part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you haven't been doing it, I would encourage you to read uh, for yourself those words and uh, study them. And that way you'll be prepared to engage with what the Lord has to say uh, when you come here on Sundays. So last week I spoke about uh, taking Jesus' exhortations seriously as he spoke about anger and sexual sin, dealing with difficult people, because Jesus understood the heart of the law and he was applying it to the hearts of his people because Jesus is very interested in our hearts. Why? Because he knows that our hearts guide virtually everything that we do, why we do things and how we do things, everything. And in Matthew 6, what Jesus is trying to sow into our hearts at the core, at the deepest level, is intimacy with God. So listen to these words from Jesus as he addresses some potential threats to that intimacy, which his disciples, disciples he was speaking to them and us as disciples now, threats that we will undoubtedly face. This is Matthew 6, verses 1 through 24. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. But truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, 
anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's our practice at Christ Community to take a few minutes to consider uh, the Scripture, to meditate on it. And so we'll take a few moments to do that and to let the Word speak. can truly transform the human heart. If I had to say it in a word, I would say love. You know, Disney and Hollywood make a mint off this concept regularly. You just consider uh, a classic Disney tale like Beauty and the Beast. Uh, in the beginning of the film, you have this beast of a man who is uh, totally savage. He's angry. He's uncontrollable. And then this beautiful lady enters his life. And slowly you see this transformation take place in the beast's heart. And you'll notice it affects every area of his life. All of a sudden his manners are better. All of a sudden he's dancing. He's throwing fewer tantrums. And not just that, but he's smiling. Why? love. And there's a reason that these types of movies are box office hits, because we can identify with them. I can remember first meeting the lady who had become my wife, and I wasn't quite as irascible as the beast, I like to think at least, but I did notice that I was behaving differently any time that she was around. In fact, as we dated, I did all sorts of things that I didn't even know I could do. I was writing her little notes, and sometimes they might even include some rhymes. I'd get her these little gifts. I would use better manners when I was with her. What was happening to me? Well, I was in love. And my heart was being transformed as I sought intimacy with this woman. So we got married. You know, because our hearts are also a central part of our spiritual lives, they function in much the same way in that arena. If our hearts get wrapped up in missions, then we go on a trip to Haiti and we begin relationships with people over there and missions becomes a more important part of our life. Uh, and when that's great, if our heart gets wrapped up in serving up here uh, in the worship then our behavior follows. We spend more time up here and we think about 
practicing and the songs we're going to play and the things we're going to do. And those, those things are great. But often our hearts get wrapped up in less godly pursuits. And ungodly behavior follows from it. They get wrapped up in pleasing other people. And so sometimes we may say things we shouldn't. Or we refrain from saying things that we should. Or our hearts get wrapped up in pursuing righteousness. Sounds good. But sometimes that's a righteousness that might smell more like the Pharisees than Jesus. And we begin judging others against our own perceived godly behavior. You see, whatever our hearts fall in love with, whatever they become intimate with, that intimacy has an effect on every part of our lives. And this explains why Jesus' words in Matthew 6 are aimed not at our behavior, but at our heart, because God wants to transform it. And because God desires to transform our hearts, we must seek intimacy with Him. So how do we do that? Well, in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 24, Jesus gives us three areas to consider. We seek intimacy with him in our spiritual disciplines, in our prayer life, and in our pursuit of treasures. So the first place where we must seek intimacy with God is in our spiritual disciplines. So in verses 1 through 18, Jesus addresses three fundamental Jewish acts of piety. Did I say that right? Three fundamental acts of Jewish piety. So giving, prayer, and fasting. And as Jesus speaks about these spiritual disciplines, he draws our attention to their purpose. Ultimately, the question we are to ask is not, how do I become a great giver? How do I become a great prayer or a great faster? But the central question here is, how do I practice these spiritual disciplines in a way that I can achieve intimacy with the Father? That's the question Jesus is answering. We're not looking for a list of laws to follow like the Pharisees, but we are seeking to follow the lawgiver. Our spiritual disciplines should lead us to him. And obviously this is not an exhaustive list that he gives, but it was the three most widely recognized spiritual practices, and as such, Jesus' commentary on them can be extended to virtually all Christian practices. So how do we foster intimacy in our spiritual disciplines? Well, I think, for one, we have to practice our disciplines for God alone. We do these things for God. There's so much in these first 18 verses about seeing and being seen and not being seen. The hypocrites give, pray, and fast in a way to be seen by others. But Jesus advocates just the opposite. No, but when you, but when you fast, when you pray, when you give, find a way to do it that is unseen, that's hidden. It's for God alone. Because guess what? Even though it's hidden from man, your Father does see. Your hidden disciplines are not hidden from Him. Jesus keeps repeating over and over in this section, don't give loudly, don't pray loudly, don't fast loudly so that others know. But when you give, hide it. Be so secretive that the other half of your body isn't even aware that you're doing it. When you pray, be as secretive as if you're going into your closet and hiding. When you fast, hide it. Be as secretive as if you were disguising the effects of your service. 
as if you were covering up your trail. Jesus keeps repeating this theme. Do these disciplines for God alone. It's like the secret practice between you and the Lord, and it will foster intimacy between you and Him. So we must practice our disciplines for God alone, but we also practice our disciplines for His reward. The only applause that we are to seek for doing these things is His. We don't seek the world's reward, but we practice our spiritual disciplines seeking a special hidden reward from our Father in Heaven. Notice that Jesus does not say, don't pursue a reward, but instead he challenges his hearers to consider whose reward are you seeking? Another way of saying that is, who are you trying to please? When you seek the reward of others, Jesus said, well, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news in verse 3, 5, and 16 is you can get that reward in full. But the bad news comes in verse 1. You will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Instead, Jesus calls us to intimacy with the Father in our disciplines by repeating the phrase, Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Seek your Father's reward. So many people have heard of the story of Eric Little because it's portrayed in the movie Chariots of Fire. It's about the famous Scottish athlete. He won multiple medals in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. And the movie mainly shows a snapshot of his life around the races that lead up to 1924. But there is this hidden component to his life that was much bigger than could be captured in the film. He was the child of missionaries, and his love and reverence for Christ permeated his life from start to finish. At school, prior to setting Olympic records, he was known uh, as an international-level rugby player. Now, rugby players aren't generally heralded for their character. But what did this uh, schoolmaster, what did Eric Little's schoolmaster say of Eric Little and his talent? The schoolmaster said of Eric Little that he was entirely without vanity. International rugby player, Olympic medalist, entirely without vanity. Man, how? He made it his aim to please God alone. And these practices had been cultivated in his life. And they were even more powerful and prevalent than his visible physical discipline. So as the movie Chariots of Fire retells, he refuses to race on Sunday, even though Sunday's race is his best event. Why? Despite great pressure to please men, he sought only to please God. It was his heavenly Father's reward that was more important to him than any medal. And that's why he phased out of professional sports and became a missionary in China after the Olympics. His desire to serve God alone and his desire for his father's reward are the things that consumed his life. And he did all kinds of things working in China, from working alongside his brother, Dr. Little, to teaching children in a prison camp and fostering hope in a very dark situation. Certainly he did things that this world will never see, but our Heavenly Father sees. 
Our Heavenly Father has the reward. So what does this mean for us and for our spiritual disciplines? Well, we note first that Jesus does say the word, use the word when, not the word if, which would indicate when he's talking about when you pray, when you give, when you fast, it would indicate that he expects his followers are doing these things. But not in a way to be seen, that they're doing them for God alone. But why? But why, as my three-year-old likes to say, but why? Is this just another Christian to-do list? No, God has given us spiritual disciplines and explained them so that we can practice them in a way that fosters intimacy with Him. These disciplines shouldn't deaden our relationship with God. They should bring it to life. That's what they're meant to do. I do think that we have to ask some challenging questions. Do I pray more often and more fervently when I am alone or when I am before others? If we perform the bulk of our spiritual disciplines before others, then Jesus calls us hypocrites, meaning actor. Someone who's playing at piety, but in truth is not really like the role they're playing. And worst of all, what do these hypocrites miss out on? Intimacy with God. Jesus is saying, brothers and sisters, don't let the accolades and admiration of men rob you of the reward that my Father wants to give you. Have you ever caught yourself saying, boy, I wish I knew God's will for this situation in my life? If so, I would encourage you to secretly cultivate these spiritual disciplines in your life and to do them for God alone. Why? Because he promises to reward us. And as we grow in intimacy with him, he will, uh, his will for our every situation will become clearer. When we fast, for example, we are temporarily stepping away from a routine in order to pray and seek God in place of that routine. So fasting is not merely a step away from food, but it's a step towards intimacy with God. And that's why we practice any spiritual discipline, for God alone, for His reward. So we seek intimacy with God in our spiritual disciplines, and we also seek intimacy with God in prayer. As Jesus is explaining these three things about giving, praying, and fasting, He stops here and expounds on the nature of prayer, describing it more particularly. So we're going to stop with Him. And I also feel at this point I have to offer a disclaimer to say, uh, this is... The Lord's Prayer, I can't possibly do this justice here today in a few moments. Um, There's another church in town, for example, that is preaching on the Lord's Prayer, and they're on their second sermon on Thy Kingdom Come. So, you know, we're kind of going at the 10,000 feet, looking down at the big picture and the big principles here, as opposed to being right down uh, in the woods looking at things up close. But this is... um, this is not the Lord's Prayer in that, uh, in that it's the prayer that Jesus prays. The prayer that Jesus prays is in John 17. But this is the Lord's, maybe more aptly titled, it's the Lord's paradigm prayer. It's his model prayer that he gives to his people. In the Gospel of Luke, the disciples ask, Oh, Lord, teach us to pray. And this is the prayer that Jesus gives them. Now I want to highlight three important principles that we can learn from this model. So how did Jesus 
teaches disciples to pray. He teaches them to pray theocentrically. He teaches them to pray corporately. And he teaches them to pray humbly. So how do we pray theocentrically? Well, first of all, let's be clear on what that means. It just means God-centered. I just put the L-Y ending on there because it kind of goes nicely with the other two. You know, you go to seminary, you learn these big words, theocentrically. So <clears throat> we pray theocentrically. So consider the opening of this prayer, where this prayer begins. Our Father, who art in heaven. If you are a Jewish person listening to this, you would think, Father in heaven. You might think of a Ecclesiastes 5.2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, when you approach his throne, let your words be few. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are totally set apart. You are the thrice holy God around whom angels chant, holy, 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 day and night, for eternity. You are, hallowed be your name. You are the God before whom the 24 elders will cast down their crowns because every ounce of glory, heaven and on earth, is due to you. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. See, He is King, just like we sang earlier. He is king. Lord, subdue this rebel that I might do your bidding. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray theocentrically. And he's also teaching them to pray corporately. Our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. In this prayer, Jesus uses the first person plural five times. And we should pay attention to that because we live in a country and at a time that is so focused on the individual where it's all about me. But this prayer is about us, our Father, me me and you, our Father, me and my Christian brothers and sisters in Haiti. He's our Father. He's the father of the patriarchs in Genesis. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our father. The repetition of the our and us pushes us beyond our immediate self-centeredness. And Jesus also teaches his disciples to pray humbly. Give us this day our daily bread. We depend on you. Jesus encourages us to pray about our daily needs and concerns. Lead us not into temptation. For Lord, uh, you know, just as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, I've, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Oh, seek your servant. He's a great God, but we're a needy people. And so we pray humbly. And this might be a good time to try to wrestle with these verses about forgiveness that we find here. In verses or in verse 12, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. 
And then he gives further exposition in verses 14 and 15. And these verses can be a little alarming because it sounds like God's forgiveness of me is conditional on my forgiveness of other people. What is Jesus saying here? Well, to quote one commentator, to fail to forgive others demonstrates that one has not really felt the saving touch of God. When we understand how God has forgiven us and the lengths that he has gone to for us, that understanding is exhibited in our readiness to forgive others. Is this challenging? Yes, because I still have a hard time forgiving people. But as I pursue intimacy with God, I grow to humbly understand the horrific, disgusting, depressing nature of my own sin, the sin that he forgave. As I grow in that knowledge and humility, I grow in my ability to forgive others. So where can we find some kind of illustration of prayer that's theocentric, that's corporate in nature, that's humble? Well, all we have to do is turn to the Psalms. The Psalms are like a prayer book for the soul. Prayers that naturally lead us in in this model that Christ has given. Consider Psalm 121, one of the songs of ascent. So this psalm was sung as a song as people went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is up on a hill, and so as they're walking up the valley, uh, headed up to Jerusalem for a feast or a festival, and they're coming up this valley on either side. There are mountains, and up on top of the mountains, what are up there on top of the hills? Are the idols and the altars and the bales to all the other gods. And so what does the psalmist say in Psalm 121? I lift my eyes up to the hills, and I see all those idols. But where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The psalmist prays theocentrically, beginning with God's greatness in the face of the idols all around him. He goes on to pray, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We're talking about the keeper of Israel here, God's people. There's a corporate awareness in this prayer of God's care for each of his people. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The psalmist goes on to repeat this idea of the Lord as his keeper. How God never sleeps. God never slumbers, but we do because we're weak. We're not like God. And so he humbly repeats this concept that the Lord is his keeper. The Lord is one who keeps him from evil. The Lord will keep his going out and his coming in from this time forth and forevermore. If you want to learn how to pray theocentrically and corporately and humbly, You can use the words in Matthew 6, or you can turn to the Psalms. Let them lead you. This book is one of the primary ways, the book of the Psalms, that God taught his people to pray in the Old Testament. And in Matthew 6, Jesus is giving us a similar prayer as a gift to his people. 
You see, he's helping us speak to him in the same way a parent walks beside an infant to help the child learn to walk. We do that with our children because we love them and we want to see them walk. And Jesus gives his disciples this prayer because he loves them and he wants to hear them pray. Why? Because prayer fosters intimacy with the Father. So how do we pray theocentrically? Well, we begin not with what we need or what we want or our issue, but we begin with who he is. And one of the ways to do that, a simple way to do that, there's a lot of ways, but one simple way to do that is by using his names from Scripture to begin our prayers by saying, O Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, O Lord, Emmanuel, God with us, O Lord of lords, King of kings, my King and my brother. So we can begin by, by considering who he is. That practice helps us orient our prayers around him and his world and his will and his ways. Not always my immediate needs. Which is also why Jesus teaches us to pray corporately. See, we're part of a body and we want to keep this body and this body's needs in mind as we pray. I was challenged by this because my prayers very often contain a lot of I and my and mine and very little we, us, ours. And as we pray, we must pray humbly. We can say, lead me not in temptation, but Lord, you know what temptation I indulged in this past week. Oh, Lord, help me. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. But, Lord, you know I struggle here. Grow me, Lord. Look, your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. But Jesus still encourages us to pray because that creates intimacy between us and our Heavenly Father. So we must seek intimacy with God in our spiritual disciplines, in our prayer, and finally, in our pursuit of treasure. Here we begin looking at verses 19 through 24. Particularly, I'm going to focus on verse 21 because I think that's a key verse, the key verse in in this section. Why is our treasure so important? Well, Jesus knows his sheep and he knows how treasure affects us. He knows that our hearts and our eyes and our money follows our treasure. This explains why Jesus exhorts us to store up treasures in heaven so earthly treasures won't hinder our intimacy with him. What we treasure has such an influence on the different facets of our life. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Why? Because Jesus knows that our hearts follow our treasure. Notice verses 19 and 20, what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say that treasure is bad. Don't store it up. Instead, he tells his disciples exactly where to store up their treasure. He says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, but instead store up treasures in heaven. And then he goes on to explain why he's telling us this truth. Notice the four, because, that starts verse 21. Four, because, this is the reason why I'm telling you this. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Your heart follows your treasure. Then Jesus goes on to extend the analogy. Our eyes, too, follow our treasure. Verses 22 and 23 are sort of like an echo of verses 19 through 21. They're another concentric circle kind of rippling out from this principle that Jesus has explained. And your eyes have an impact on the health of your whole body, according to Jesus. Good eyes, your whole body will be full of light. Bad eyes, your whole body will be full of darkness. So what is a bad eye? Well, we have a phrase that's the same thing and more literally translated, an evil eye. The Greek translation in the Old Testament, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses this phrase about a bad eye or an evil eye when it talks about looking on a brother grudgingly. In Deuteronomy 15.9, Moses is exhorting people not to look on their poor, needy brother grudgingly, but he goes on to exhort the wealthy not to withhold their treasure, their crops and their gifts from them. See, if you treasure those crops, your eyes fixated on them, then you're going to resent your brother. He's going to get the evil eye. Because your eyes follow your treasure. Our money also follows our treasure. Here we have another antithesis where two opposites are compared. If treasure on earth, treasure in heaven, good eye, bad eye, serve God or serve money. Jesus is making us aware of something that we simply aren't able to do. You cannot serve God and money. Another possible translation would be, you cannot be a slave to two different masters. He's not saying it's a bad idea. He's just saying it's not even possible. Why not? Because you will hate one and you will love the other. Or you will love one and hate the other. You can't serve God and money. So the implication is, serve God. Serve God alone. You see, Jesus knows how our hearts work. That's why he makes these divisions. Back to verse 21. Because our money follows our treasure. And if our treasure is on earth, our money will follow it. And it will harm our intimacy with our Father in heaven. So Jesus explains these principles more fully when he tells the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20. Again, Jesus is telling his disciples about the kingdom, both in Matthew 20 and in Matthew 6. And in Matthew 20, he tells about the master of a house who goes out early in the morning to find laborers, and he agrees with them on a price for the day's work, one denarius, a day's wage. Then he went out later in the day, the master of the house went out later in the day and hired more workers and agreed to pay them to work in his vineyard. Then he went out again and hired more workers, and the master does this five times in total, going out at different points of the day and hiring people. And then at the end of the day, the master decided that he would pay each worker a denarius, regardless of what time they got there. I guess you got a little upset about that. The ones who arrived first. I mean, even though they had explicitly agreed to work all day for one denarius. And how does the master respond? Well, in Matthew 20:15, the master of the house says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? 
or do you begrudge my generosity? That do you begrudge is the exact same phrase from Matthew 6.23 about the evil eye. The master of the house says, are you giving me an evil eye because I'm generous? Those questions, that one and the previous question, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Those are challenging. Because it reminds us that all the real treasure is his. And this parable is warning his followers that there's a tendency in our hearts to focus on treasures on earth. Where was this worker's treasure? Well, maybe serving the master initially, but it turned out to be on the money that he was earning. By the end of the day, his heart had soured and his eye glimmered and he became focused on the money that he felt like he deserved. So in my initial reading of this parable, I got frustrated with those guys who agreed to work all day for a denarius. I mean, they agreed to do that. They agreed to it at the beginning of the day. The master gave them a job and a purpose and a reward. Boy, how could they be so full of greed? But if I sit with this parable for more than a moment, I realize I am that worker. I'm the ungrateful laborer casting an evil eye on the master because I feel that I deserve more. And when I react to this parable in that way and I say in my heart, that's not fair. It reveals that I have some growing to do in my intimacy and understanding of our Heavenly Father. Because you see, what's not fair is not that he gave each worker a denarius, but that he sent his son to die for a man who would rather bicker about a denarius than express gratitude for his master's generosity. That's what's not fair. And yet the master did that for us. Oftentimes when we get frustrated with God, it may be because our heart, our eye, or our money is tangled up with treasures here on earth. And if it is, it's going to interfere with your intimacy with him. What is your treasure in heaven? Well, ultimately, it's him, the one who gave his life for you. Nothing on earth that you set your heart, your eye, or your money on did that. Seek intimacy with him. Let him be your treasure. So here in Matthew 6, Jesus is charging his followers to give their hearts to God. This is the purpose of our spiritual disciplines, our prayer, and the pursuit of our treasures. We use these means, the means that he gave us, to seek intimacy with him. And it's our intimacy with him that fosters true transformation of the heart. You see, there will be a treasure that is revealed one day that is immeasurably more than we could have ever asked for or imagined. And that's why Jesus commands us to seek intimacy with our Father in heaven so we won't mistakenly trade in his great reward for the momentary accolades or treasures of earth. He will reward you. He sees what you do in secret. All the little denarii that we bickered over will pale in comparison to this great reward. And lastly, when we recognize what real love is, 
that Jesus Christ came and died for us and freed us from sin. That is the true power that transforms hearts. When my spiritual disciplines and my prayer and my pursuit of my treasures are infused with the gratitude and recognition of His great gift to me, those three practices will become a means for the very intimacy that He commands. And it is that love that will permanently and irreversibly and ultimately transform our hearts. Pray with me.